That's the other side effect of the pandemic world is that we are now so engrossed in our bubbles, our social bubbles. You know, how will we get people to re-engage socially responsibly, but also just be more open to social interaction? And I think that that meaningful human element is going to be very important, that a brand is going to have to promise and deliver on that for people to want to come back out and engage. So... You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Michelle Collins isn't just the founder and president of a non-agency. She's a journalist, a marketer, a salesperson, a design strategist, and most of all, a problem solver. During our conversation, we talked about the issues surrounding fulfillment, the future of retail real estate, the big problems with shopping mall environments, and the future of digital-driven store experiences. But no matter where a conversation went, the twists and turns, it all laddered up to one core thing, what the customer wants. During our chat, Michelle breaks down the key realities, the key considerations for experienced creators, whether they're in marketing or store design, and what key trends she'll be focusing on in the future. Want to know what the future holds for experience strategy? Listen in and find out. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the show. It's really great to have you. Thanks, Alicia. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm really excited to chat with you because you have such a great background. You have a background in journalism, marketing, and PR. And of course, now you're in this fascinating world where marketing experience and technology are kind of coming together. So how did you get here? What drove you to get into the field that you're in now? Oh, it's funny. I sort of fell into it, but I do look back and have kind of a distinct point of view that journalism being the degree that I first sought and pursued was really just kind of the spectacular foundation because everything is about storytelling. So as a journalism student, for my generation of when I studied, it really was about you had to learn to ask the right questions. You had to be able to navigate somebody's state of being and emotional state to get them to feel comfortable in that conversation. And then likewise, learning to shoot and edit and tell the story that would be compelling enough for someone, your audience to want to listen and be engaged. I think that's kind of the fundamental of everything in life. And one of the other aspects of journalism when you start out is you are pitching, you're constantly pitching, right? So you're pitching a story, you're pitching someone to be the subject of your story. So it's all pitching. And that is about life is all about selling yourself and learning to sell something. So I would say that it's not so much even just journalism. It's just that I understood that I loved finding a way to find interesting people and experiences and and share that experience or individual story. So my biggest, I think, attribute coming out of early stages of my career was that I was never afraid to ask questions and to, you know, pitch and sell because I just felt like life was about selling yourself and selling things. So that was the fundamental basis. And I moved to New York and I've lived in New York now for over 17 years. And New York was so interesting because it just had this wonderful energy and dynamic and people were just so available. If you had a question and a story to tell, you could find someone to listen to it. So I started out in journalism, but then my roles have always been 
that that would support uh, PR, marketing, and sales. It was never one without the other. So I've evolved through the years with that. And then when I found my roots in understanding that I wasn't going to be someone who was really a traditional corporate kind of employee or executive at that time, I really turned into the entrepreneur that I think you find in I've never really set forth an agenda of this is exactly what I'm going to do. I always understood what I was good at and what I was passionate at. Um, And that's really how I started to develop into the world of pure marketing. So as I kind of go back to what I've shared with you is that a PR marketing and sales are one. So that was the kind of the core principle of everything I did as I started my business. And then I shape-shifted. In that over the years, I had a lot of different clients and I was running a consultancy. So my clients were technology clients, they were agency clients, they were direct-to-brand clients, they were startup clients. And I loved that. I loved being challenged by, could you create something? Could you be successful at something with almost nothing? So it wasn't about the big title or the business entity with the, the years of background that supported me. It was more about credentials of what are you going to bring and deliver to the table. So my whole business was based on understanding who my customer was, understanding how I was going to help them achieve their goals with their customer. So experiential marketing, the core of that is storytelling. It's about engaging people and making a compelling reason for people to want to be present, interact, share data, spend time, right? Spread the word all the things that we just talked about. So I I don't know, I think experiential marketing was just a natural evolution for those of us who have been in the world where PR, marketing, and sales are one complete skill set. I love that. Michelle, I feel like I'm in some weird way connected to you because I studied journalism in school as well. And I was trying to figure out my my path forward. I obviously started as an editor at Retail Touchpoints. And then I started to evolve getting into new forms of content marketing, new forms of storytelling. And that principle that marketing, PR, and sales, you know, can and should coexist, they all kind of work together, is so, I think, spot on because everything needs to be interconnected, right, to tell that complete story. So it seems like your, not just your history in journalism, that story first and audience first mindset gave you an advantage, but also this this perspective that all of these things should be coexisting together. Is that fair to say that this principle is kind of driving you and a non-agency and therefore kind of giving you a bit of a jump start or an advantage from, from a creative perspective? Or what, what do you think kind of helps you and your agency stand apart? I love that you just said that, Alicia. And I'm sure you can connect to this. When you're starting out in journalism, right? you are actually having to shoot your story, edit your story, write your story, interview, do all of the above, right? So you are the creative department, you're the account director, you're the salesperson, the whole thing. So I've never ever seen a project engagement, a role or anything that I've been involved in or the clients have asked myself and my team to be involved in as one that doesn't expect that we are all things. So I've never had that conversation where I would say to a client, that's not my job. That's not my role. Inexperiential, let's just talk about the principle of that. It's about delivering a consumer experience. So if you're not interested, and I will share a funny story with you. There was someone that was introduced to me and she was on paper. She looked great. She was a master's degree, 
Ivy League, the whole shebang. And she wanted to get into advertising and marketing and she was struggling and she'd had a couple of internships. And so I asked her the principle of what do you want to do? And her response was, I want to be an advertising executive. I said, okay, but what part of it is it that you would like to be involved in? And she goes, well, I don't want to do the sales. I just want to manage the account. So I think that that inevitably is a common, I would just call it, it's a problem. It's a mindset of someone who doesn't want to put in the legwork and the time and the effort and isn't truly passionate about what she's doing. She just wants to take on a piece of it. And when you're dealing with people, I think that's the most important thing in all things, right? So the relationship building is important. Even if that means it's a one-time event or a short-term pop-up or a long-term strategy of engagement, right? It's still fundamentally, the rule is you are building a relationship and that relationship, you can either be given the pleasure of extended amounts of time, a captive audience, repeat audience, or you're challenged by you've got five minutes and that's the five minutes that will forever last in their mind. So I think when you think about the way that journalism and we're taught, right? So when you write a pitch, you've got basically, you've got a, you got a headline or you've got two sentences or you get a paragraph if you're lucky That's how I operate, which is it needs to be meaningful. It needs to be relevant. And there's never a conversation or a point that doesn't create some kind of affinity. So it really is like, it has to be sincere. It has to be authentic. The person has to trust you. So I don't know. I I think it's really interesting that from the world of broadcast journalism and storytelling, I moved into the world of PR, marketing, and sales. But I feel that truly, since you asked the question, has it given me a leg up? Creatively, absolutely. Creatively, I understand that to be a creative, you can't just assume that someone else would do the actual work. As a creative, you generate the thought, the creativity to also solve problems, right? If you can't get that interview, you figure out a way to get that interview. Likewise, creativity also means that you're constantly looking at the world with a different lens. And if there's a problem, you have to figure out a way to solve that problem. You also have to build teams. So everybody has a different type of creative input or expertise. So you have to understand you can't force someone into a situation where they're not going to be the best that they can be. So yeah, I think that it certainly has prepared me for that. But as a side note to it, the hands-on requirement of what journalism pushes you to be able to deliver to be an exceptional storyteller also means that you're not afraid to get your hands dirty. You don't ever say to someone or to a client, that's not my role, that's not my job. Yeah, totally. That's actually a bit of a mantra at um, our parent company, uh, G3 Communications, that no one is above the work, right? And I'm hearing more about people being strategically minded, right? Like the big idea creators, the ones who are coming up with these solutions to problems, are thinking about new ways to tell stories, but then are still technically driven, like doing the work. So it seems like that's very much your approach as the founder of this company. But we talked about some of the fundamentals at a foundational level, I feel like, around what makes experiential marketing, or I guess just general experiences successful. And it's very driven by solving problems, telling stories, being more human, I guess you could say, which in a way has kind of become a marketing buzzword in and of itself. But if you were to break down some of like the core principles of 
effective experiential marketing? And we'll kind of get into experiential marketing as a term in a second, but is there anything else like around what would be the keys or the drivers to success right now? Well, I think that it starts with the fundamental philosophy and attitude. And this may sound very negative, but whenever I'm faced with an opportunity or the project or the creative solution, the first thing I'm always asking is, but why? Why why should I care? Because I move into the consumer's mindset first and foremost. If you can't overcome the, the objections and the hurdles and aren't aware that they are in a world where we are constantly exposed, probably so much so that we are exhausted, right? We're fatigued by visuals, by sound, by chatter, by noise, that it really comes down to a simple question. It's like, why should I care? The answer comes along with the the question, which is, why should you care? It's not why. Why is this cool? That doesn't make me care for you, that product, this experience. And the why is important because I think sometimes in experiential, there's quite a few wonderful, creative, like, wow, blow your mind types of experiences, right? But it's like, it's great for social. It's great for the video one-off moment, but why should I care afterwards, right? What does that really do for me afterwards? So for that moment in time, you've filled my, you know, void with some entertainment or a free product sample, but why should I care after? And I think that's the thing that we have to talk about, which is the success drivers in any experience is that it has such, and I love that you use the word human. And I don't think that we should ever assume human should be used as a buzzword. I think that it's actually about true understanding that you're passionate about something, you want to share something and human means that you actually care, (laughs) right? So when I go back to the, again, it's like, why should I care? Tell me all the reasons why I should care. And then you have to then demonstrate through actions that that caring is genuine and authentic. So inexperienced marketing, for example, what we're seeing now, right? There are lots of brands who are now pivoting to direct to consumer engagement. And there are plenty of individuals who have now just got on the bandwagon of what luxury clientele have been saying for years, which is clienteling isn't just that the client is called when there's something to offer for them to sell to. It is, they know their client in and out. Like they know their birthday outside of the CRM tool. They know that their two children are being prepped for interviews at a school. They know that the animal or the pet is seven years old. They know things because they care. So I think we're moving into a world it was interesting to see that Bottega Veneta just decided to pull themselves off of social media, which I actually, I have to applaud. I have to say that there is something very wonderful about seeing that they understand that this extensive availability of visual and social media conversations and influencers, I don't know that people care. <laughs> and the people that they want as clients may not care about that as much. And I think that it's a very interesting thing to watch as a trend because I think success metrics are going to be about how true to form can you actually communicate the authenticity and the genuine desire to create a relationship with your client. When you ask them the question, did you enjoy that product? You know, were you happy with that purchase? That's just a satisfaction score. And I think we have to figure out a better way to actually have that conversation 
And I think that's really what we're going to see as a as kind of a turning point is going back to what what you touched on that human element. I think that's whoever can figure out how to communicate that and then to follow through with delivering on that human element of consumer experience. I think that's who we should look to. And I think that's what we're all going to be striving for. Yeah. I definitely think that point of why should I care should really be in the back of our minds as content creators, as marketers, as experience creators, because to your point around social media, I know that sometimes I even have my moments where I'm just scrolling mindlessly, right? I'm not really consuming or engaging with anything. It's like we're almost on autopilot. And I could imagine that even in person, it's like, oh, that's cool. Like, I'm going to take a picture. But then it just kind of floats into the back of our mind and it doesn't really resonate. There, there's no intention behind that moment of engagement, I guess you could say, which, which kind of leads me to my next question for you, because we've been saying experiential marketing so far quite a bit. And when I hear experiential marketing or experiential retail, both of which have been very hot topics in the industry over the past few years, there's always that undertone of like cool, innovative, even flashy, trendy, and that human element, that meaning element is never really as clicked into. So I want to ask you upfront and you know, take this where you want. What is your take on experiential marketing as a term or as a trend? Because again, I feel like we've been hearing about it so much. We've been talking about it so much. Is that the appropriate work term? Is it a meaningful term? Because you're, you're living and breathing this every day. So I, I would love your honest take on it. Experiential marketing is such a buzzword. And I have a view that as someone who has been in the business and over a decade ago as part of the movement when the dot-com world was also similarly as to now taking quite a bit of the business from the retail stores, there was a whole evolution of how do we get people back into the stores. So I was part of that kind of first group of individuals who were creating interesting window digital interactive, both game applications and experiences that would then connect to, which is another big buzzword, omni-channel marketing strategies, right? That would then connect all the different organizations and honestly, um, operational and fiscal and otherwise and programs to create consumer engagement. But if I go back in my book over a decade ago, what I saw as a landscape was that there are there were PR companies that were just traditional PR media companies. There were, I like to call them private event planners, event planners who traditionally just do those types of uh, smaller or even bigger, but still events specific. Then there were the digital natives that were creating really fantastic digital applications. And then there were the content creators. I think experiential evolved because everybody understood that where you needed to be was in this space where who could create an experience to engage customers to create both purchase, right, and incentive to find their way back into the retail physical store. So all of a sudden we had this digital divide, right? So there was the digital versus physical, which now I also feel we should be talking about as that is no longer the case. Digital and physical are one in itself. So people that talk about brick and mortar, I think that's also very outdated. There is no such thing as a separation because consumers now are fluid, right? So we expect digital and we expect physical in some form. 
back then, over a decade ago, there was a very different approach to consumer experiences. And then as the big ad agencies who were traditionally advertising or marketing agencies started to understand that they needed to sell these rather big ticket items. So all of a sudden we went from private events, we went from content creators to, okay, we actually need to create an activation, as they like to call it, an activation, which we would then have to sell to a client that could potentially be one to $3 million. I mean, that's a pretty tough sell because a client needs to understand what's going to happen in that moment. And what would be happening is a whole lot of PR, marketing, sales, technology, everything in one. So the best way to explain it to a client was define it. And I think experiential marketing was the buzzword that the industry formed to help clients also get their mind wrapped around this idea that there would not be a singular way to engage a customer or a strategy to bring a customer back into the fold, whether that be brand engagement, whether that be brand loyalty, whether that be customer acquisition and purchasing or retention. I think that experiential marketing came from a need to find a way to sum up this new approach to engaging customers. So really, fundamentally, we're just talking about consumer marketing strategies. That's really what it is, the fundamental role of how are we going to engage customers? So it's consumer marketing strategies, really. But in my view, my humble view, that's where experiential marketing and the term experiential (laughs) evolved. Yeah, no, and it's really fascinating. I'm glad you brought up that point around the digital divide, right? And how that doesn't really exist anymore, because I feel like that really was solidified with COVID, right? I mean, we're hearing so much around the gap closing between e-commerce and in-store. Of course, you know, store is still the lion's share of purchasing, but from a behavioral standpoint, people are spending more time online, they're shopping more through digital channels. So it's just a natural extension of what we do. So, I mean, over time, do you think, how do you think this notion of experiential marketing is going to evolve? To your point, is it just going to eventually become consumer marketing in the industry's eyes? Or what's really going to be driving, I guess, the future of this area of the world with everything going on with COVID? I mean, certainly experiences, period, are not going to go away. Just because consumers are engaged online, because there is a, A, we need something to do. (laughs) <laughs> right? we're, we're kind of in a standstill in the current climate of pandemic. So there is a online frenzy of let's figure out what we can do to keep ourselves occupied, et cetera. So online purchases obviously satisfy a compulsive need to purchase things right? that we would normally have done, let's say, in a physical retail store. It's also the convenience, but we're also now starting to see where the convenience of online purchasing is becoming an issue specifically fulfillment. So if I buy something and I'm not pleased with it and I'd like to have it returned, then I've got potentially boxes stacking up in my apartment or my doorman or et cetera, right? (laughs) For them to pick up and return. From the brand side, that's also not sustainable. So that's why I think people are looking at how would they use existing infrastructures, organizations, so the Amazons of the world, et cetera, that can fulfill these kind of massive amounts of direct-to-consumer purchases. But then going back to the smaller brands who have traditionally worked in wholesale markets who potentially would have sold to a Barney's or the places that no longer exist, they are now trying to fulfill orders. 
but they can't support the big fulfillment distribution. So there is a new trend evolving, which is micro fulfillment centers. And I think that is a good thing for us to keep a close eye on. I'm working on one in particular for a client, and there is an interesting pivot that incentivizing customers to buy online, but pick up, not necessarily in store, but in a physical location, A, for the customer who potentially would get a better offer, price, or discount for doing so, because who knows, brands may start charging you for the actual product, or the next day delivery is no longer an option. It's going to be at least a five, six. In some places, it's now three months or six months because everything's made to order. I certainly think that that trend is going to be something for us to, to be watching. And so this online surge, as we understand it, I think that it is certainly reminiscent of over a decade ago when we had the dot-com boom as well. But the reason that we pivoted into experiential when that happened was there was one thing that you couldn't do for people online and people just weren't having fun, right? The play, the interaction, the fun was missing. So that's where the uh, physical store was able to deliver on that. So that's what you saw is that people like myself who were digital natives and who could bridge the two worlds were figuring out ways where if I could get to you and potentially reach the audience online, right? But bring you to the store because that's only that's the only place you would get that unique experience, then we were successful in bringing people back into the store. And then it became the challenge of how do you make the two worlds cohesive and connect. And I think that that's exactly what we're going to see again, which is people are still going to be interested in experiencing things outside of their home. I think that people are are missing the fun. They are missing that social interaction. So we have another opportunity for that to happen. We are also going to forever cope and deal with, I, I mean, there is some emotional trauma to the pandemic. And so there will be plenty of people who are now shifting their whole way of life So for those who would normally have been active and engaged and exploring different spaces, they may not be as willing. So there's all kinds of things and opportunities that are going to evolve. But for now, I see the surge on online. It's wonderful. It's great for businesses that can thrive and survive. But again, we have fulfillment problems. We also are going to have a void of delivering that fun, playful, interactive social experience that people are going to be craving. So what are we going to see? We're going to see that if you can find a way to take the efficiency of the buy online, pick up in store, and then deliver entertainment potentially in those environments, I think you can see some success there. I'm personally working on a concept of what I call more of the retail social space, which is this idea that people are looking for a curated space that they actually have input into, meaning why am I, you know, why am I going to travel 20 minutes to a space that I walk through five floors of, I don't want anything here. Likewise, I'm being bombarded by a ton of salespeople. So there are a lot of different opportunities, but I, again, I think it's going to come back to, you are actually going to have to start with the conversation and answer the question, you know, why should they care? So why should I care to spend the money, the small limited amount of money I have, right? Because let's face it, we are in an economy of a depression. Why should I care enough to expose or risk interacting with people or places that potentially may still have some remnants of the pandemic or COVID. Why should I care to have a conversation with you if I don't know you, right? So I think that 
that's the other side effect. The pandemic world is that we are now so engrossed in our bubbles, our social bubbles. You know, how will we get people to re-engage socially responsibly, but also just be more open to social interaction? And I think that that meaningful human element is going to be very important that a brand is going to have to promise and deliver on that for people to want to come back out and engage. So some really fascinating points. And I love that idea of the social and curated type experiences. And I'm wondering, I would love your take on this. I'm wondering if there's a correlation with that concept or an opportunity for that concept to really come to life as so many retailers and brands are taking a closer look at their store strategy, right? Whether it be the number of stores, the sizes of stores, the layouts of their stores. They're really looking at this, not just from a growth perspective, but like what's best from a brand experience perspective and for our customers. So would you say that those ideas kind of play well together? Are there any other opportunities for brands to kind of think creatively, even if they don't have these ginormous stores anymore? Absolutely. The short-term strategy, I think we all saw this as experiential really boomed. And I I subsequently, my agency also um, benefited from this. There were tons of pop-ups. And then pop-ups became more of semi-permanent installations. So they might live in a space a little longer and they would offer the brand the ability to pilot new products potentially or services. Number two, it would also potentially gain a lot of data and information about that geographic market to get a sense of whether that would be a place to position a more permanent location. I absolutely see opportunities whereby brands who still believe and fundamentally need to have consumer interaction outside of a, you know, a virtual stylist calling a client, there's plenty of opportunities for them to look at how can they, they take their existing strategies and budgets, but they just need to be able to have more flexibility. So one of the key topics that I've spent a lot of time in 2020 talking about was this idea, we have a lot of space. We just need to reimagine how we use the space. So obviously zoning laws are not going to change overnight. So you have problems with the brand side, the retailer side, but also the developers and the property managers are also suffering. I don't want to leave them out. There has to be a way that both parties can figure out a way to reutilize, rethink, reimagine the way consumers would like to use space. I think that's the question. That's the question. And, and the answer is going to be one about perhaps a brand needs to be more open and receptive to, it's not going to be just their retail store. In my vision of what I've developed as a concept, I call brand closet, this idea that the consumer is able to engage a space where a curated list of furniture, um, ready-to-wear accessories, home goods, all these things are different brands that are going to now be presented in a space where the consumer also will then share with you which items they would like to have in that space while they're engaging with you. So yeah, there's opportunities for us to think about different ways to just fundamentally use space, but also why would you want to carry the burden of a quarter of a million dollar rent in one stationary market, especially now that we've seen that we've had so many people in New York City is a great example, move from the city into other major cities. Certainly there's an opportunity to think about what is that short-term strategy to engage them where they are, but also test the market for whether or not the existing communities would be receptive to it. So There's something interesting afoot, and I think I'm obviously a big advocate of being a part of that, but I also am very excited about it because 
I think it's such a refreshing change and take on how we use space, how we present products and opportunities to customers. And then three, it, it also touches on a really important point of sustainability, which why are we producing so many things that people are just not interested in? And how many times have you walked into a store and just been like, what is all this? Who buys this? And I think that I'm very surprised, but pleasantly so to see how we are now coming out of this pandemic moment. And I like to call it a moment just to <laughs> just to soften the blow. Right, right. <laughs> how we're coming out of this and becoming more aware that there's a lot of waste. And sustainability isn't just purely about us wasting things. It's also about developing things that people will find meaningful. So as opposed to just a gazillion t-shirts for the sake of a gazillion t-shirts made in 25 colors, why aren't we using really smart technology, which is available now, which is the idea of digital identity embedded thread that will then become a living product. So if I were to buy a shirt, I won't throw that shirt away because it has a digital identity that might have been embedded with my own childhood memory. Or that piece of clothing that used to be something I would wear is now the thing that reacts and speaks to my Spotify app or to my home or to my, my TV. Or if I go to a, a stadium, that it now is communicating with the environment around me. And I think there's so many interesting opportunities where the consumer experience and technology is created to connect you to that physical object in a way that is a mindset of sustainability and genuinely caring, right? So going back to that question, why should I care? I think about that even just from a, when you develop a product, why should I care? But alongside with that, we should be thinking about if I care more about the purchase I made, perhaps we'd have less waste, right? I'd hold on to that item for five, 10, 12 years. Versus, oh, I bought this haphazardly online and I don't really care for it, but it was like a $22 shirt. So who cares? Let's throw it away. I mean, that's, that's the topic that also very much excites me outside of Brand Closet is this idea of how will technology imbued in the actual thread created into products and then developed into these experience environments, how will that help us become more attached and, and genuinely care about the things that we purchase or we gift or we receive. I think that's actually a really interesting channel as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think it ties really nicely to your point around the examples of excessiveness that we've seen, like you said, with New York City, right? So many stores closing. I mean, the, the restaurant industry is a completely different conversation, but I think it's definitely encouraging brands and retailers to think more critically about not just what they put out into the world, like how much, but like what that experience looks like and the meaning that they put out into the world. And I know that we're seeing a lot of volatility, especially in the shopping mall world, developers and landlords really rethinking and analyzing how they plan to move forward, the types of brands they want to partner with, what their lease agreements look like, and more importantly, what that overall experience looks like. Like, is it just shopping? Is it shopping entertainment and more? So I, I feel like there's a tech connection there because I know one of your many projects, you helped Kate Spade roll out 
shoppable construction barriers in, I think it was the Short Hills Mall, which is right in our backyard. I'm wondering if there's a connecting point or an opportunity there for the mall developers and landlords that may be listening to this. They're trying to figure out a way to better connect the dots with their brands and in turn with their audiences. So is there a way to kind of bring this all together into like a more cohesive shopping mall type environment? I mean, I think that the shopping mall, it has been their bane of their existence for a long time. You know, maybe there was a period of time where all we read was the death of the shopping mall, right? And then what they did, which was quite smart, is that they realized that in the suburbs, the shopping mall is where people would come together. The community would socialize. It was a meeting place, right? That was a whole premise around the idea of the dining facilities and how they've changed that experience. And then they started creating these different community hubs, or they were creating these mobile applications that would create more of an editorial content and then push notifications to bring you there, hosting a series of different education programs. I think that they were on the right path there, but I also feel like they got very caught up in we then went to a time where people were just, again, we were all thriving, people were shopping, people were buying anything and everything. (laughs) And again, so I think that they they lost track of something that I think what you brought up was interesting about the shoppable barricade. This was many, many years ago, but this was part of that at the forefront of experiential. This was one part of it. The idea that we could create something that wasn't even just for one location, it was actually a project. They Their request was for us to build something that could travel, be modular to different locations because they were opening a series of different locations at different malls. And part of the challenge was the technology was designed to create playfulness, engagement, storytelling, and then the fundamental goal of every brand at that time was just pure data. So if we could ask the right questions in a playful manner and get people to interact, would we then be able to potentially understand at the Short Hills Mall, these were the types of colors, patterns, prints, and merchandise that this audience would be interested in? That's interesting, right? Because if you take that data and you apply that to your store planning and merchandise that is appealing to your local demographic would be more ideal in terms of potentially, right? the profitability of that store. So that was interesting. But the challenge is, and this is an interesting nuance that only people that work in this side of the mall world understands that the brands don't own that data. The malls own the data. So it's a very interesting dynamic or some malls will share that data, but there was no incentive for the brand to, for many brands to go above and beyond because they wouldn't even own their own data. The only data they can own was anything that happened either in the dot-com e-com world or specifically happening in the store potentially, but everything else had to be owned by the mall. So the dynamics of the relationship with the mall operators, with the retailers and brands has to change. Absolutely. And I think you're seeing that because you've seen that some of the mall operators have invested in some retailers that were potentially going out of business. So that was an interesting turn. I thought that was quite smart. That if you're invested in the stores that are coming in to your property, then it's a mutually beneficial initiative. So I think that's very smart. I think more of that will probably continue to happen. I think that we've also seen that the big anchor stores on the malls, that many of them have either gone bankrupt or in the process of closing, that they are 
holding those properties because it's a big chunk of real estate and anchor anchor locations on the mall are extremely valuable. So I would not be surprised if we saw those places being turned into either fulfillment centers, micro fulfillment distribution centers, which also have a retail-esque environment and or Mall's talking about, they started the journey of creating community hub and community activities at the mall. What does that look like now in this new stage and era? And I think they have a lot more opportunity to open up some of those storefronts to creating something a little bit more unique. And I mean, it comes down to, we also have an outdated antiquated, and I've spent a lot of time just trying to get myself up to speed on this. The zoning laws, they just don't permit for some of these innovations that we are thinking about talking about for consumer experiences, the zoning laws won't even permit the actual property or brands to pivot. So you find a lot of the legal teams trying to work around it or figure out how they get around it. But until those things actually start to change, I think you're going to see that we're having the front end conversation, but the back end conversation needs to happen more rapidly. And I don't know if that will happen soon enough but certainly that is a barrier to innovation. So many layers to it, and it's really fascinating. So that, that's definitely one area we're going to be keeping a very close eye on moving forward. So you bring up a lot of great points. Thank you for that. And I feel like we've been talking about a lot of trends, some technologies. I think that integration between experience and the actual item that you were talking about earlier, especially around apparel, was very interesting. But if you were to kind of boil down like some of the key trends to watch, I guess from a technology perspective in particular, are there any particular ones that have the most potential from an experience standpoint? I mean, you've talked about micro-fulfillment centers quite a bit, talked about curation. Any other key ones that we haven't talked about yet? I mean, let me see. Let me just, uh, I'm going to recap with you. I think that one of the big trends is definitely going to be keep an eye on what digital identity means. Data is going to be interpreted differently. And if we can translate data into a digital identity that can manifest into strategies in both product manufacturing to consumer experiences to product design that touch on sustainability, I think we're going to see an interesting output of that. And then the second layer to that is how digital identity and technology embedded in manufacturing and product design will then actually explode this you know, trend of personalized curated opportunities where the internet of things that kind of died out for a little while, we all just became very excited about Alexa, right? <laughs> and now we're all kind of trying to understand what the implications of machine learning are to AI. But keep an eye on how digital identities in the way that it gets translated into products, actual products, and how that will then fold into the internet of things and responsive environments that really translate to personalized experiences. I would say that is that is something absolutely we have to keep a close eye on. We talked about micro-fulfillment centers, and I think specific to technology data around micro-fulfillment centers, what we're looking at is Micro-fulfillment centers will have a very interesting way of translating data. So if I'm at a micro-fulfillment center and I'm able to see what is trending in terms of why people are exchanging, returning, happy, not happy, all of those things, that supports, again, sustainability and efficiency. And I think there's something really interesting about how they'll use that kind of data and the technologies they'll use to capture both sentiment 
and just fundamental customer satisfaction, I think fulfillment centers have a very unique opportunity to do that and to engage customers in that way. Specific to environments that are curated, again, this idea that what we're not going to obtain when people are, are purely buying and shopping online, there is something that you have to you have to give a lot of merit and credence to about what will people do in the privacy of their social closest social circles or in a space that they feel genuinely comfortable or they've helped curate. So the way the consumer behaves in that physical space also is going to be interesting. If you, we can find ways to capture that data, that is also something that is going to feed this idea that we've been talking about since the start of this podcast, which is why should I care in that human element? And that also then feeds right into the next generation of AI, right? So those are pretty much in the data technology space, my trends and predictions for where we're heading. Love it so much. I feel like we could talk for hours, Michelle. <laughs> I'm but just rambling. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I love it. I love hearing from people like you again that are are living this every day, that are having so many great conversations with brands, retailers, but are also executing upon it, like finding solutions to those problems. So you're my kind of people. You can go on and on all day with me. So <laughs> thanks for your patience. <laughs> no, no, I love it. I would love to have you on the show again sometime soon too, to maybe almost do a, do a bit of a touch base to see how all of this evolves because I do feel like at the end of the day, all of these different facets of the brand business or the retail business, they're becoming more connected, right? I think your point around micro-fulfillment centers is testament to that, right? It used to be kind of like a back-end thing, operations, the stuff behind the curtain. And now there's opportunity to make it forward-facing or customer-facing and an opportunity to connect them to similar people. I mean, I feel like those like fit finder type tools are kind of like the just barely scratching the surface of it, like why people return things, how things fit. Absolutely. But there's so much opportunity there. So thank you again for being transparent with me, you know, getting your thoughts on all things experiential, what it really means, what it should mean, and what the possibilities are. But with that, we've covered a lot <laughs> of ground, a lot of ideas and opportunities. So I'm sure there are some executives listening to this right now saying, okay, I have a checklist of so many great ideas, how do I figure out where to start or how to prioritize? So any closing points of advice to kind of help them guide their strategic thinking and kind of help them determine what type of approach is best for them or how to kind of develop their plan? Well, there's a simple answer, which is they should call me. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. If not, I think it's just important to have someone in the organization that is truly a transformational innovator who has enough background and knowledge that these big ideas that really are going to be the, it's the long game, right? It's not going to happen overnight that you constantly fuel that kind of individual or position. I think that it's also extremely important that when executives or the management teams are thinking about creatives, I think that creatives are no longer just people who are art directors or art designers. Experience design is not just about somebody who can do wireframes for mobile and web applications. Experienced designers will actually need to have the actual experience and the capability of supporting a transformational innovative 
innovator and innovation by mapping that out across the organization. So visually being able to articulate to the operations group, to the store planning group, to even just some of the financial and the CFO and the COOs of the organization and the technology groups, they'll actually be able to have, be able to document and show the organization in visual maps and otherwise how the experience works. So if you think about, we've talked about digital identities and how that could be embedded into threads that are designed into products, and then the products could respond to the environments, and those environments are then connected to the technology systems and the data that also then have to fulfill the products or the orders. That's a very complex matrix. So when we think about creatives, there does need to be either an individual or a group that supports the ability to create diagrams to communicate across the organizations how it will impact across all of their different systems and staff planning. So it's going to be a tricky one. It's a hard person to find, but I would say that if you are in the phase that you are truly seeking to transform and to innovate, and clearly we are in that climate now that it is critical for you to be thinking about how can you find that transformational innovator thinker and support them with the right types of creatives who can actually help the organization understand the experience design and how it's going to transform the organization across every platform, technology, and staff planning. No, it's, it's fascinating. And I agree. Now is the time to kind of do that work because it's a time of uncertainty in some, some ways, but also a time of reinvention, a lot of rethinking around, you know, not just have been doing things, but also what is possible. Michelle, again, thank you so much for taking the time out. It was a real joy to meet you, hear your story and, and get your perspectives on everything that's happening in this fascinating world right now. Thank you again. It was such a pleasure. Thanks, Alicia. And all of you out there, if you have any follow-up questions or points of feedback for Michelle or for us around this episode, please drop us a line on Twitter at our touch points. We'd love to hear from you and most importantly, facilitate those follow-up conversations with Michelle and the folks at her firm. And if you haven't already subscribed to the pod, we are out every week with new episodes, new conversations, and new insights from fascinating folks like Michelle. So please subscribe to us so you can get new episodes when they are available. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and frankly, everywhere else. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.